Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I've got my partner in crime from Big Digital Energy, Mark Meyer, on. And we are lucky to have as our guest, Derek Brower from the Financial Times, who said, screw it, I don't want to do energy anymore, I'm out. Was that? That's right. <laughs> the, uh, so, Derek, we appreciate you coming on. The um, You reached out when we talked about the final article you wrote for the Financial Times on energy and and tell us a little bit about what you're going to do and then talk to us about that article. Maybe we'll start there. Uh, Sure. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to talk about energy again. I've just started a new job as the uh, U.S. political news editor, which, you know, I kind of thought that I was – uh, stuck in the culture war um, when I was covering energy, but uh, <laughs> hadn't seen anything yet. So I'm I'm now I've gone from the furnace into the fire. Really, no, I'm I'm kind of consumed every day now with what Donald Trump is about to say or not say, or what the courts are going to say about him, whether you know what Joe Biden is going to do. So I'm I'm in charge of all of the Financial Times political coverage in the U.S. Now, so let me very focused on the election. Let me let me cut you off just real quick. So for a little over a year, as I like to say, I've been dating my girlfriend for 14 months. She's been dating me for 13 months um, and she's British and she would uh, be very mad at me if I didn't ask, where are you from? And she's going to be really mad that I can't tell the accent. So I'm I was born in Manchester in the north of England. I'm a true northerner. Um, but my parents were actually Canadians who emigrated from Canada to the UK from a dairy farm up in Alberta. Uh, so I, I'm genuinely, and I moved back and forth across the Atlantic a few times. And my mother lived in a, when she was a kid in New Jersey. So I'm genuinely one of these transatlantic beasts. Uh, so I feel at home in, in New Jersey, at home in Alberta, among the oil rigs and dairy farms in central Alberta and um, at home in Manchester in the rain as well. Well, I would uh, I would figure if you grew up in England, you would just be mortified by the state of our politics. But uh... <laughs> well, English, British politics isn't too great either. I can I'll say that. <laughs> tell us tell us about the uh, the article you wrote. Um, kind of saying goodbye to energy because Mark and I both enjoyed the article and and would love to chat about it. Yeah, I mean, I had a really interesting response to this piece. It was my last article. It actually wasn't. There were a few articles that came out out afterwards, but it was my last newsletter. We have the Energy Source newsletter at the Financial Times as well, and I was the editor of that as well as in charge of the energy coverage at the FT. And the newsletter is nice because it has a bit more of a connection with the readers and a bit more back and forth. And I just let it all out. I said some stuff that, um, you know, I thought I'd been thinking about for quite a while. And the main themes that I I thought I was picking out, and it's funny because people on both sides of the divide on climate and energy transition have, ha- have reacted to it in different ways. And I which is I'm glad about because it feels like I went down the middle somehow. But I wanted the things that I picked out were one that 
the world really isn't transitioning as quickly as the optimists think. Uh, and if it is going to, and by optimists, I mean the people who are really enthusiastic about ditching fossil fuels, moving to clean energy and so on. It's just not happening quickly. Um, people like to think it is. There was a huge New York Times piece over the weekend that was you know, full of kind of techno optimism, clean tech optimism, and captured some of that. Um, but my view is that actually fossil fuels remain extremely dominant uh, and that's not changing quickly. And if you believe that they, that needs to change, uh, that should be alarming to those people. That was one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I, I took aim at was the idea that it's all ExxonMobil's fault, essentially. If you can't, you can't complain about ExxonMobil producing all this stuff if you are happy traveling around Europe by plane to go skiing or attend your, you know, um, your, your business conferences and so on and fly back and forth across the, the Atlantic. That's kind of a cognitive dissonance that I think is, is all too rich in the world. And, and, you know, I said a bunch of other stuff. One of the things was that I, I loved covering energy because the people in energy, I found really interesting and I had a, an opportunity to travel you know, across the world into different war zones, speak to all range of people, which is an opportunity that journalists covering hedge funds <laughs> don't get. They get to go to Midtown in New York, and that's about it. Um, I got to spend time on the front lines of the civil war in Libya. So uh, there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to say in there, and and it had a pretty interesting response because people on, you know, somebody sent me a, I'm not on Instagram myself, somebody sent me a, a an, uh, a climate influencer who'd, who'd loved it. There were other people I had come at me saying, uh, you know, from the opposite end of the kind of political energy spectrum, um, saying that I shouldn't have said that it's our personal responsibility to cut back on energy if we think that energy is, you know, consuming fossil fuels is is um, needs to be curtailed or anything. You know, there was lots of different response to it. Uh, you guys had your own response to, I think, because I listened to the podcast afterwards. So the, I think, I think what maybe, cause we went back and forth on direct messages and maybe what I was trying to say um, about kind of your, your article that may not have come through when I did is I, I do think there's an issue with, the what I will call the the enthusiastic people for renewables in that they're not being, I think, as honest about the state of an electric grid we would have if it was powered by all of renewables. And if we tell the third world, if we tell Africa and and the like, if we say, hey, we got ours with coal and oil and natural gas and we got to industrialize, hey, you guys are going to have to deal with solar and wind, which just aren't as reliable and good luck building an economy that way. I kind of called it the let them eat cake. You know, if we say mm -hmm. that, it, it's going to be bad for world politics if we do that. And I didn't mean to imply mm -hmm. that you were saying you were saying that, but I think that's maybe the, a little bit of the disconnect we had on the podcast. I, I took it exactly as you laid it out, Derek, which is writing Okay, if if we're going to do this, and I think in the in the in the title or the headline it was the volatility around all the factors impacting upon 
transition means that mm -hmm. it's not going to get done on the timeline if you subscribe to net zero by 2050, for example. That was making that point and not essentially taking a position. But I think there's some, you know, there's some fairly thought-provoking and sometimes uh, emotion-evoking type of, of points of view. For example, uh, in response to Chuck's Let Them Eat Cake, you point out that if this is going to happen, it can't be by the private sector. It has to be public sector and government and politically led. And, you know, that, that I think raises a whole other set of both practical and political issues, not the least of which is, you know, we see a lot of NGO leadership around the world, namely the UN and the IEA, uh, basically demanding that we do these things. At least that's the way I take some of the more extreme hyperbole, right. um, such as global boiling, for example. And, and so we are talking about trillions of dollars, and you were making the point that <laughs> there's no chance that the developing world is going to be able to finance that or fund it. That that falls on um, really the shoulders yep. and the responsibility of the perpetrators, so to speak, right? And so um, we, we actually had an – we were just talking about it before you came on. We had a um, – uh, kind of an athletic or sports, pro sports styled energy draft about a year and a half ago. And if you were energy czar of the world, what what would you choose as your first draft pick? And so that, <clears throat> I think, in, in my own case, I, I I think natural gas is way more than a bridge. I think it's, it's proven to be an effective emission substitution in the U.S. on, on a very practical and cost-effective basis over time. But my point ending uh, to how do you actually do this was exactly those terms. It has to be kind of a Marshall plan. It has to be mm -hmm. public sector led because we're talking about scale of decision-making and financing that is yep. beyond a, a very fragmented public sector base in terms of getting it all unified and moving in the same direction to get us to yeah. whatever yeah, that goal I, is in I, 2050. I agree. I, look, I, one of the things – I said that stuff, and actually the reaction from a lot of people was, well, listen, somebody at the Financial Times is is a communist and saying that it's, <laughs> this is all going to be have to be done by states. I think I, the point I was also trying to make is that a lot of people who aren't energy specialists think in these kind of techno-futurist optimistic ways and believe that capital markets, if you can tweak somehow how uh, – an ETF works and draw investors into a green investment or green bonds or something, or we can just, you know, tweak capitalism somehow. This will drive enough capital. The, the capital will be allocated to the right place and so on. And that's kind of the, the underlying thesis of the ESG movement. Uh, and I've, I've been in, in rooms hearing this stuff for so long about how this is the way this is going to be fixed. And to me, every time I would think, have you not even looked at the roads, like the road infrastructure or the water infrastructure? Like literally everything in the building that we're in right now depends or has depended on the fossil fuels that you're talking about eradicating through some ETF or by some ESG related bond that BlackRock can do. Like this is just, there's just a, there was a, there's a huge disconnect between the scale of what people are talking about and the methods by which they envisage upending that multi-trillion dollar economic system that has been around for decades. Like if we are truly going to do this, 
none of the solutions that people are proposing on the margins in places that BlackRock are really viable, frankly. I don't want to single out BlackRock, whatever. They, you know, but in terms of where capital markets are, they saw an opportunity to to get more fees from ESG funds and so on, and they've been successful in that. But let's not mistake that for genuine upending of the fossil fuel system. The fossil fuel system is not going anywhere under those circumstances. So that's that's one of the things I was trying to say. If we really want to do this, if you really believe that to save the world and to prevent catastrophic climate change, etc., we need to eradicate fossil fuels and replace them with this, then let's start by understanding just what we are talking about, which is the biggest, most significant infrastructure project that we have ever conceived off the charts of anything we've we've really conceived. Uh, let me let me throw one thing at you. I'll say this as a statement, but it's really a question to you, Derek. The worry I have is we're going to go spend all these trillions, and I think you've laid it out very well, the biggest infrastructure project ever. And we're going to do that in Europe. We're going to do that in the United States. We might have some influence to get it done in Africa. I don't think China and India are going to listen to us on that. And I jokingly say this on the podcast all the time, and you know, pardon my French, but there's not a peeing and a non-peeing section of the pool. If China and India mm-hmm. continue on their existing trajectory, would that trillions have been better spent maybe trying to develop next generation technologies? What do you think about that? If China, if China and India don't come along, then uh, I, it's futile. Um, it's it's scratching or scratching the surface. I, I agree with that. I do think that there is there is a possibility that in a clean arms, a clean energy arms race, China does come along, and China is also outspending the rest of the developed world consistently on clean energy, as well as doing as well as you know building a lot of fossil fuel burning power stations and so on as well. Um, so, but I do agree. Like the general principle is this: we all have to do it, or there's no point any of us spending all this money. I think that there is a kind of a middle ground where there is a virtuous new economy that's created, whether you agree with the heavy subsidies in the IRA or not, from a political kind of polit- political philosophy point of view, whether you believe that sub- subsidies do that or whatever. Leaving that aside for a sec, that is happening. And there is this potentially this new economy that's created. And that happens kind of independently. And we do create all this clean energy. And it does, add, you know, it is additive to some extent in how much energy we supply and it's clean and so on. It's just that that in itself isn't going to deal with the fundamental problem of the world warming unless we deal with the scale problem. The scale problem is, first of all, domestic one or first of all, a Chinese and Indian one, but also a infrastructure one in economies like Europe and and uh, and the US. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, China and India have to come along and the, develop, the developing world, East Asia has to come along. But even if they did, there's still this huge underlying infrastructure problem we have in the developed world. Like both things have to happen. Both things have to happen. And, it's, and at the moment, they aren't happening, and they aren't going to happen unless the rich world agrees that they need to pay for it either. That's the other thing. Because as you said, the, the people in poor countries can't afford it. And also they have – you know, we, we had an energy crisis in Europe. My parents' bill went up, but my parents can still afford that, thankfully, barely. They're not wealthy people, but their energy bill quadrupling because of the shortage of natural gas in Europe was a serious thing for them. But that's 
even more serious. Like the the developing world faces a a an energy crisis continually, continually. You, in parts of the poor world, that is what their life is. It's trying to find more energy to keep the lights on and and be able to afford it always. So there is a constant energy crisis somewhere in the world. And until those energy crises are deal, dealt with, those countries aren't going to be along for this ride either. Now they're not big contributors to climate change, I grant, but they may be in future. And at the moment, what they need is just electricity. And if they if if, if their need for electricity yeah. means that they need coal fired power stations, they're going to put coal fired power stations in because they want that electricity, just as Germany did when the you know lights started to go off in after Russia cut its gas supply. I'll pick that that up, Derek. You, you bring up Germany. We've talked more recently about another case where you, you can call it kind of de facto acceleration of the transition in these microcosms defined as Germany, but one one here closer to home in Rhode Island where Next Revolution, which was the second phase of offshore Rhode Island energy, was rejected by uh, Rhode Island Energy because of, and we haven't seen the full Public Utilities Commission filing, um, rising costs, and also, which which puzzled me, higher level of uncertainty around things like federal tax subsidies. And my reaction to that is, how do you have higher levels of uncertainty when you have all this clarity around um, qualification under the uh, Inflation Reduction Act? And I, I kind of pointed to that, and I don't mean it in, a, in any kind of malicious way, but it's a bit of a cop-out because really the issue is going to the Public Utilities Commission and saying we need to increase the rate base um, to the rate payers in Rhode Island, and you've kind of reached the ceiling of inflation tolerance enough is enough. And I was recently in Germany, in Holland, and in, in, uh, France and the U.K., and I took the liberty of talking to people on the street, uh, the rank and file, and there's a there's a clear difference between uh, or a disconnect between where these acceleration programs are pointed and what you know what the patience and level of tolerance uh, and all of that's anecdotal for absorbing more and more inflation, yep. particularly in the energy and power basket. So I, I think I think you know we're 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 seeing rising rising headwinds and pushback at i think a, a for the for the point in time that you're talking about the need for acceleration if we're going to get on the trajectory or back on the trajectory to meet uh, net zero 2050 it's just a you know it's, yeah, it's I agree. the friction the in the intersection is really very, growing politics are very difficult now not just here everywhere and the russia you know the invasion is partly responsible for that, or it has shed light again on how difficult this transition is going to be. I mean, we lost 2% of global natural gas supply, and Western economies basically decided that they could suspend their net zero commitments because of that. I mean, they, you know. One other, I'm a bit of a, a natural gas fanboy, I guess, um, and, and part of that chain reaction of Europe scrambling and bidding up available LNG, given that shortage on the margin, is countries like Pakistan could not secure even a single cargo in immediate aftermath of that. They've said, we're going to quadruple yeah. our coal-fired generation capacity yeah. Yeah. in the near future. So, I, There are a lot of things that I think they, that have happened since the invasion. The invasion has kind of opened up this Pandora's box of things that we all 
can talk about openly now, and one of them is that the energy transition is going to be a lot harder because it can it's not going to happen cheaply. And we have just shown that in Western rich countries, we don't really have a tolerance level. I mean, as soon as as soon as uh, gas prices got above four bucks here, the U.S. drained its strategic petroleum reserve. I mean, it's it was you know this is we're off the charts now in terms of how politicians are willing to react to energy price inflation, um, and yet we're expecting this colossal transition to happen in the space of a couple of decades while carrying public approval along with the political desire to do it. So it's, and it just doesn't seem feasible to me. If we've shown, we've shown the, the lesson I think of Germany's reaction of the UK's reaction of Spain's reaction of the fossil fuel subsidies that were put in place after the invasion is that these politicians do not have an appetite to tell people how expensive it'll be to eradicate fossil fuels from their systems for now. So what we'll do here, because we got about five minutes left, um, I'm going to let I'm going to ask you a two-part question. Mark alluded to the policy draft we did uh, about a year, year and a half ago. I'm going to make you energy czar of the world. I'm going to let you kind of choose your policy that comes out, and then I want you to put your I want you to look into your crystal ball and say how does this actually play out over the next next couple of decades. And, and what I've learned in podcasting, no one remembers when you're wrong. They only remember when you're right. So feel free to, to swing away at it. Well, if I had my – I'm allowed to pick whatever energy form or system I want? Or Yeah, you're the man. The rule? You, you are the okay. energy czar of planet Earth. Well, there's a lot of nuclear in there. It's nuclear everywhere. Uh, it's nuclear. It's electrification. It's new grids. Um, it's upgrading infrastructure everywhere. It's you know electrification. I, I believe that electrification is important, but it's at the moment it's stuck in the in a in a kind of ghetto of rich world. You know, I live in a part of the country in the U.S. where there are a bunch of Teslas and there are a bunch of charging stations. You drive over, literally over the hill, and it's F one fifties and and Trump signs again. And this is just the reality that we have in the U.S. at the moment. So I would I do believe in electrification, but it needs base load power generation that people can rely on, it needs grids that people can rely on that don't that aren't like strung through trees that are going to burn down in 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 wildfires and cause devastation places. It needs a full upgrade of the electrical grid and and a base load power generation that comes from uh, something like nuclear power generation. Natural what? gas in in the short term would be necessary, but nuclear is, should be the answer. It's absolutely insane that that somehow uh, the world has turned away from nuclear in the way it has. You know, it's been really interesting on BDE, the podcast. Oh. Um, my girlfriend chastised us for saying that, you know, Europe was a uniblock. And so we actually went through each country and looked at their energy policies, energy makeup, because the girlfriend's point was it's 25, 30 different countries. And one of the things that came out of there that I didn't appreciate is the nuclear capability in France really has served as a battery for Europe. And it has allowed Germany to do as much in the way of renewables as they have England to do as much in the way because they're exporting baseload power to both of those countries. So it's, it's interesting you bring it up. So how does this play out over the next couple of decades? Sorry, Mark. 
it's going to be volatile. I mean, that was one of the other things that I wrote in that piece. It's going to be volatile because there are so many vested interests and you cannot eradicate, or you cannot start to drive down oil demand. I mean, let's just look at oil demand, for example, 100 million barrels a day of oil demand, 103 million barrels a day right now. We get that down to 40 million barrels a day as the IEA wants us to do over the next uh, two and a half decades. Um, Saudi Arabia is not going to sit idly by and let this happen. Countries like Iraq are not going to survive if this happens. Countries in some of the most volatile regions of the world are going to be deprived of their main source of income. Companies are not going to, like ExxonMobil, are not going to, their fiduciary duty will be not to allow this to happen. So there are, this is the idea that we, this can happen seamlessly, especially with, without hefty carbon taxes and so on that brings consumers along and, and incentivizes a, a, a different direction of consumption. It, this is going to be super, super volatile. And I've lived in and reported from some of these countries where the, the only thing going for them in their economy is really their oil exports. And I've been, and I've been there while they're at war. And I, sadly, I think the vulnerabilities of these countries are going to be exposed again if we go down that direction. So we have to be prepared for that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means that that is, we have to accept that that is one of the costs of this transition if it's going to happen. Uh, so political volatility. Um, I also think we, if we want this to happen, we have to be prepared for much higher energy costs. And that is something that no politician right now, I mean, Europeans have got higher energy costs than Americans, but even so, they panicked when the cost went up even further. And nobody in American politics is willing to talk about that, really. Biden isn't willing to talk about it. He's named the Inflation Reduction Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, to, under this pretense that um, this is somehow a macroeconomic strategy to, to drive down prices instead of something that is you know, trying to expand, expand the supply side without the demand side management. Right. Yeah, it does right. And, and politicians without do not the, want to talk about demand, demand side management. management at all. Right. Well, on your on your uh, you know on your nuclear heavy uh, future, I th I think we're seeing some green shoots, uh, particularly in Europe, where um, Finland, for example, literally on the heels of the Germans shutting down their last three nuclear facilities, started the largest nuclear uh, power generating facility in Europe. And it now supplies, I think, 14% of Finland's power. And so you saw the French reverse course. The Japanese have reverse course even, you know, barely a decade after Fukushima. Um, so I, I do think there is a pragmatic or physics-based equilibrium where you get baseload that's reliable. You have tried and true technology. It's gotten a lot better uh, the question is the kind of political inertia that that stands in the way of a nuclear build out, and I, I wanted to say at the outset, <laughs> you really didn't get away from energy <laughs> covering politics. <laughs> you you make a Venn, drive, Venn diagram of energy and yeah. politics. That area in the middle is almost a perfect overlap. So um, those are those are really the encouraging things, and I I think you know it's we've got to. From a naive point of view, we've got yeah. to depoliticize as much as possible this conversation. And we've talked about it with respect to the grid, um, for example. We'd like to have more science, uh, scientific experts and technology and engineering experts yeah. at the table yeah. and fewer politicians. Yeah, unfortunately. Right, so. <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think that's – that's uh, it doesn't seem likely to happen. I think the other thing I guess I would say is um, – 
until we start to see politicians willing to take on the question of demand, and until I see evidence, frankly, that global oil demand even is coming down, global coal demand isn't even coming down. I mean, for crying out loud, this is we've been talking about climate for however long. There have been so many climate agreements, and yet the world is still consuming more coal. Uh, this is in itself is is an absolute kind of condemnation of the way the top-down way that the global gov, you know governments around the world have been trying to deal with this problem um i think we haven't clearly it's not working if we're still consuming more and more coal uh but there's no evidence yet that oil demand is going to start coming down in the way that it has to if this um if fossil fuels are going to if the use of fossil fuels is going to be curtailed in the way that the iea and others say needs to happen or the ipcc says and by the way i say this as somebody who totally accepts the the climate side of it i just i'm pessimistic that the world is doing anything like what it needs to do to meet this problem well derek you are awesome to come on and uh and talk about it because i do i i do think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of everything on this planet's a water balloon right you push in one side the other side pops out and i think you did a nice job in your in your uh, farewell article of laying that out. And so I appreciate you coming on and uh, chatting with us. We want to have you back though sometime soon because we want to get into politics. I can't wait to see this presidential campaign. I'm a libertarian, so my guys always lose. So I just like the theater of all of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to it. Um, thank you for having me on. Thank enjoyed, you, Derek. Enjoyed chatting with you guys. Yeah, I keep, keep teeing up. Um, what I call constructively provocative. And if you get the right points of view from all parts of the spectrum in the room, you can have, I think, very helpful and, and, and thoughtful uh, um, discussions around this. Thank and I you. think that's, that's absolutely necessary. Nice so we it. appreciate it.